City. It's your man, Big Pat, the voice of your Charlotte Hornets. And you're listening to the All Hornets Podcast Network, presented by Sports Illustrated. Welcome to a free agency edition of Inside the Hive. I am James Plyright, a.k.a. The British Buzz on Twitter, and I'm joined by Chase Whitney to talk all things free agency so far. Chase, you've just done a, a four-hour round trip in Maine to pick up your girlfriend for the holiday weekend. Uh, how was your drive and how's your day going? Uh, it's going well. It was, a, it was a good trip up and down 95 today. Uh, I, I'm I'm a little bit perturbed with the lack of action that we've gotten in this free agency period. I feel like we were promised a whole bunch of player movement and some crazy stuff. I mean, we've gotten requests for, for said player movement and crazy stuff, but it has not lived itself out in the way that I think many thought or that uh, we were promised by the, the folks on ASPN and inside the NBA and whatnot. It, it has. It's yet to come to fruition. I'm, you know, I have a baby on the way imminently. And I'm really hoping that these James Harden and Damian Lillard trades happen before that. Uh, for those listening, my, my, our due date is the 8th of July, which is in four days' time. And genuinely, I could become a dad like any hour now. So, um, yeah, I could really do with these big news items getting out of the way. That would be great. Um, I will also say for listeners of the podcast, uh, if I do disappear for a couple of weeks um, and you don't hear from me, that is the reason why I will be taking a little bit of a break from the podcast um, over the time, obviously to, to be there for, uh, for my wife, Jess and be there for our baby boy. So I wanted to get that in there at the start as well. Um, free agency. Free ag- we titled this episode free agency so far, because I still feel it's an incomplete picture. I still think it's difficult to grade it, but what we're going to focus on today are the things that we know have happened um, and just talk about some of our feelings. And I think the place we have to start, is Lamella Ball has signed a max contract joining Desmond Bain, Anthony Edwards, Tyrese Halliburton as the other players from his draft class to sign the max contracts. Um, was this always the way it's going to go? Is this just business as usual, Chase? I mean, I think so. I mean, they with how much faith the organization has put into Lamella over the last couple of years to get to this point and not be, you know, fully had to show any hesitancy to give him that contract would kind of be counterintuitive to everything they've done over the last couple of years. I mean, they didn't draft Scoot Henderson number two. So very clearly they believe in him as the guy, the ball handler, the point guard, the leader of the team going forward. And those types of players tend to get paid the supermax contracts that, you know, can span five years and get up to $260 million. Like, Lamella has the chance to do here if he makes an all-NBA team. Exactly. So it's up to 260. The contract, if he doesn't make all-NBA, will be 207 million, which that starts at 34 million a year, I believe, in his first year, and will slowly go up with, I believe, 8% raises. Um, In terms of the max contracts, just something to point out, people may or may not be aware, there are different levels of max contracts. There's a term that gets thrown around a lot, but depending what years of experience you have in the NBA actually depends what your max is. So someone under six years of experience, which the Lamella would be, their max starts at 34 million. For someone with seven to nine years experience, their max starts at 40 million. And to someone with 10 plus years of experience, their max starts at 47 million. So 
this is what some people are calling the fun max because it's technically a max contract, but in reality, this is probably like the best value max you're going to get. It's not going to be in the Bradley Beal, John Wall kind of era where it almost like hamstrings your team more than it helps. Uh, and you're still going to probably get the player getting better and maybe be at their best by their mid-20s. So um, I-, I agree. It was business as usual. I will say it is the biggest contract that Michael Jordan has get- ever given out or this franchise has ever given out. They've never given a max rookie scale contract out. So the fact that it kind of was an afterthought, I think is a, a relief to a lot of fans. I will say it does scare me. Like how can, how can a full soup like max of any player who isn't, I don't know, a no brainer or every single year, all-star, which I don't think the mother ball has proven he is quite yet. Not proven every year, all-star giving a max to anyone like that, I think does carry an element of risk, but you got to sign up for it. you got no choice um, with the position the Hornets are in, with the talent and the flashes that he's shown. I think he could have been a multiple-time All-Star if he'd been healthier. Um, I'm not saying they shouldn't have done it at all, but it is always a scary point that you have Lamelo going to be on big, big money for a long time here. And he, I think, is it fair to say that he needs to get better for him to be worth this contract? Or do you think right now he's worth it? I mean, oh, I mean, that's tough. I mean, he did average 27 and six this year. And going forward with how much the cap is going to rise, I think it's 52 million average annual value if he gets up to that 260 million and makes an all NBA team. So, I mean, that doesn't sound like that bad to me going forward. Like, because with the perspective of that, you know, NBA players, especially like, at the top tier and like the max guys that are the highest paid player on their respective teams are going to make considerably more both yearly and over the length of their whole entire contract than they ever have in history. I mean, we, the players like, we just saw Fred Van Vliet get three years, $142 million, like yeah, 42 million a year. Yeah. Like these players that are like borderline all-stars and up are going to just be getting paid crazy yearly like average annual value contracts that we just have not seen before and it might take like a couple of years to adjust that like perspective of like how much you know you should expect these types of players to get paid of that caliber and I mean even right now I think that's probably fine for me for Lamella but especially in a couple of years like I don't think that'll be a problem even if he continues putting up pretty much equal numbers to what he does now yeah and, and I think he will undoubtedly get better he definitely wasn't healthy last year um, just by having other weapons around him, uh, I, I think he'll he'll get much better. But I, I do think it's an interesting one. If he was the exact same player now, I think you would probably just about do it, but maybe not feel great. You probably feel a bit like you do with Fred Van Vliet, like you said, right? Where <laughs> it's like you signed him, but you're like, that's that's a lot of money for a guy who's like only been an All Star when he was an injury replacement, and he's you know it's not like Lamelli who did that when he was 20. Fred Van Vliet is in his, in his late 20s, I want to say when that happened. And it's probably past his peak now, I would argue. But look, Lamelo back on the team, a foundational building block. Um, I'm just relieved that there isn't any drama going into next year. You know, they could have done what Tyrese Maxey did, right, with the Sixers. But they've said, we're not going to extend you because we want the low salary uh, on our books for next year to give us more flexibility. You know, the, the Hornets could have trolled out that kind of line um, to kick the can down the road for the new owners or or maybe it could have given them flexibility, but they didn't do any of that. 
they were, I think, third off the board behind Halliburton, behind Bain, ahead of Anthony Edwards. Um, I'm just relieved it was done, done quickly. It should have happened for a franchise that does have a reputation for not paying their players. Um, to get that out done early, I think it just sends a really positive message. So big win all round on the ball. Had to do it. I just want to say one last thing to all the people that said he was going to decline this yes. extension Tell and go, go to unrestricted free agency so he could leave Charlotte. Try again in six years. I'll set the set the timer, and you can you can try again. Keep your photoshops ready, but it's gonna it's gonna be a while. Absolutely, and also a quick message to Bill Simmons, who I, I listened to his podcast of the day recapping free agency. <laughs> and uh, Bill Bill Simmons with his you know I I enjoy Bill Simmons. I think he's entertaining, and I think I think he does have some insight on teams that he watches. Unfortunately, the Charlotte he absolutely Hornets, does. Yes, the, I think I know exactly what you're about to say, and yes, I agree. Yeah, the Charlotte the Hornets sh- are clearly not one of those. Yeah. <laughs> They are not. Uh, and I don't blame him, right? You have 30 teams to watch. Like, the Hornets have not been relevant for how long. It, I, I don't necessarily blame him, but at least, like, maybe have the self-awareness to be like, I've never really watched them, I shouldn't say. But, you know, he's a national entertainer podcaster. He's got to throw stuff out. He said, you know, the Melbourne get me to 500 maybe before I sign the max. I mean, the Hornets literally won 43 games the year before when he was healthy. So, <laughs> just... so. Uh, Bill Simmons, do your research, okay? Uh, and let's come back to us. Almost there. Not quite, but almost there. Okay, moving on to maybe some not-so-business-as-usual. Miles Bridges has signed the qualifying offer of $7.9 million, which means he will be an unrestricted free agent next summer, but he will retain a no-trade clause for the upcoming season. Uh, by signing that qualifying offer, it does reduce his cap hold from being the, the $16 million it was, down to 7.9 million, which means that the Charlotte don't have cap space yet, but do have an easier route to cap space this summer if they potentially wanted it. Brackets, Grant Williams, maybe, question mark. More on that later. Um, this seems to be an interesting one. I think it's split opinion, really, in amongst Hornets fans. We talked about this at length. You said you found it so hard to figure out how this was going to play out. What do you make of this situation? Um, do you think it's a, a fair way the events have gone? Yeah, well, I mean, this was not what I thought was going to happen with that. So <laughs> clearly I was I was right to be Me not neither. confident at all <laughs> in what I thought was going to happen because this would not have been... Why not? Let's, let's just pull that. Why did we not talk about this as an option when we talked about it in our preview podcast? I so have my I, own theory, but, yeah. but I'd like to hear from you. I think part of it is that, and this isn't any one group's fault specifically but the details at through which like his restricted free agency like where that stands and what his contract status is and whatnot over the last year has been really confusing and like not ever really been like clearly stated by either the team or the nba it's just like people reporting and like reading the cba and kind of inferring like what might happen because i remember wasn't it like it was supposed to be in like March or something that the, the qualifying offer got rescinded automatically and he couldn't receive it anymore or something. Obviously that wasn't true because he re- received it again. And then my initial understanding of it was that he wasn't able to accept that qualifying offer because he let it expire already. And the only reason so, it was there so was to I can, qualify I can clarify, him as a free agent. Okay. I can so, clarify perfect, on that bit. Yes. His qualifying offer did expire from last season, right? Right. But because so you, they maintain his rights... 
you so basically you can two of them. You you basically restart again. It's like having an overseas player that okay. you extend your your qualifying offer to an overseas player if you have their rights. So like the Hornets, for example, still have like Isaiah Thomas's qualifying offer on their salary cap at the minute, which they're holding, and they can renounce whenever they want, whenever they need to. Um, so it's something that that would stay there basically until uh, there was a resolution with Miles Bridges or they decided to renounce his right, rights entirely. Um, so it did expire, but then as soon as you hit the new financial year, you still maintain his rights and you can retender it. Okay. See, that makes sense. But, and then, and then now that's with the new CBA, I wasn't sure if there was any new rule that might've yeah. changed with that or anything, which I'm sure there might be, but even going forward, like another thing that I kind of reason I thought that this was unexpected was, I guess like, I, 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 maybe I thought the negotiations would just have been slightly closer in some way, even though there was mm. like no real indication from either side, like one way or another, like how strongly they wanted to, you know, have this reunion. It was just kind of like, you know, we can infer from social media posts that the, there's mutual interest in a reunion. And that was basically the best we got. Um, well, but it's, it I, seems I, like that was not as strong as maybe we had thought previously. I do think there was a lot of reporting building up to it that Miles Bridges is widely expected to be back in Charlotte next year. I think we heard that from Mark Stein. I think we heard that from Jake I Fisher. So, yeah. um, you know, rumblings throughout the latter half of the season and the soft season. Um, I mean, what you said there is my main reason. I, I just thought that both Bridges' camp and the team have had so long to think about this right. that as soon as free agency hit, that they would almost have a plan in place. Like, and there would be, they'd have so long to bring it together. And, you know, Charlotte Hornets really, they didn't, they didn't outwardly stand by Miles Bridges, but they were completely silent really. And in my opinion, what that basically said was like, they were not burning the bridges with Miles Bridges, which I thought would, count for something long-term. They kind of stood by him without standing by him publicly. Um, and I kind of expected that, but you know, by Charlotte be willing to take Miles back onto the roster, that his agency would be like, look, you're doing us a solid. We're coming out of a difficult situation. Miles is lucky just to kind of be back in the NBA to be in the league. And you still want to have him back even after he basically screwed your franchise for an entire year like let's let's work something out here. It might not be a super long term deal, but let's work something out where Miles gets paid a little bit of money. You get a little bit of team control. You get a bit of a discount for the you know the inconvenience and missing ten games through the upcoming season. Um, and let's find a middle ground. And I'm still surprised that didn't happen. Uh, I'd love to know what the two sides are pushing for contract wise a clutch basically pretending that you know the whole thing didn't happen and being like yeah we want 30 million which is what we wanted last summer and if that's the case then i i have no blame whatsoever on the of the front office for being like well we're just not doing that um or a hornet's trying to lowball it saying well miles go get an offer sheet and if not we're gonna you know we'll offer 12 million per year or 10 million per year which is slightly above your qualifying offer um, you know, you have to get a deal elsewhere or else that's what we're going to offer. You, you just don't know which end of the spectrum this falls in. And without knowing those details, we might get reports in the coming months who, which where both sides would probably try and, you know, claim victory or claim that they were treated poorly. I imagine we'll get conflicting reports. But that's the real key difference for me. 
And I am still surprised that they didn't get there. But like thinking about it now, I guess, yeah, I'm not shocked that it's ended it. Well, I am shocked it's ended up this way, but I can now see how it does make sense a little bit for both sides. Yeah. And it's clear that like neither side was treating this with any level of like sentimentality at all. Like the Hornets were just going into it like, okay, you were going to, we were going to ready to pay you, you know, X amount of dollars per year. Then this like really serious thing happened and you were arrested, pled no contest, missed an entire season of basketball are now suspended for 30 games with 20 games served to start next season. That affects what we were going to pay you originally. Now we want to pay you this. And then Miles's camp, presumably, what I think might have happened, was just like, we don't think that that is, has affected uh, yeah. Miles's value as a basketball player. Like, Miles is still this good at basketball. He was a 20-point-per-game scorer. He can do this, this, and this. Like, he's still worth, you know, what whatever offer that they thought he was worth. And then the Hornets were like, nope, we don't think so. And then the clutch said, okay. And they signed the qualifying offer because that was, I think they extended the qualifying offer on June 28th and he signed it July 1st or July 2nd, I think at this, at this point, but yep. obviously it wasn't uh, very long. And I, um, there was a report Shams Charania mentioned in his tweet that Hornets had extended like their last op- like final offer basically on Sunday and that, or yeah, so it was July 2nd. So, and then that later that Sunday, they signed the qualifying offer. So clearly they were just like, no, like, and then the negotiations were just over once that yeah. final offer got in, because it was probably so far off that there was just no point in continuing. And it is interesting. You normally don't see the qualifying offer in a restricted free agency get signed that early in free agency. Right. Exactly. Normally it was this literally thing is, like 48 hours. Yeah. <laughs> normally it lingers on for a week, two, maybe sometimes a month. I remember Tristan Thompson went into like the freaking preseason greg monroe took a super long time with it a a while back with the pistons as well like you don't normally see this and you have to think the off-court situation his agency had basically been told by all the other teams there is nothing out there do not wait there's no point waiting you're waiting for a phone call that is not coming from anywhere else so if you're not taking their contract extension you need to take the qualifying offer because there is nothing else coming in here and it seemingly that's what they did i do wonder as well like me and you have that assumption that have they not got closer, you know, with these discussions, maybe there has been something that we don't know about where they can't negotiate with Bridges camp. I'm guessing they can't technically uh, with clutch during <laughs> this maybe whole Maybe the rumors that Mitch doesn't tamper. Maybe, well, maybe they're true. Maybe he waited until I think 6 you're p.m. Absolutely on June right. 30th. <laughs> I, I, I do. Honestly, I think it might seem bizarre in the world of like corrupt NBA where you have teams losing draft picks for tampering every year, but maybe Mitch Kupchak genuinely had no single discussions with his agency ahead of free agency. And when they started, they just started from too far away from each other. And they've not had that time to kind of, to kind of think about it, to, to stew on it and to come to an agreement over a longer period. And, and I do think that is very possibly um, a factor here, which hasn't been reported yet, but it, it would not shock me at all. We, we know from previous reporting that Mitch is known for that. It's very interesting to know also that with this qualifying offer, Miles has a no trade clause for this yeah. season. So if he were to be moved, he controls his destination. Uh, and now he hits next summer as an unrestricted free agent 
uh, with a no trade clause. So he's either picking his next destination in February or he's picking his next destination, you know, at this time next year. So and it probably in some ways it might like increase his trade value for this trade deadline. Like let's say the season doesn't go right. All of a sudden he's on a 7.9 million contract. So his cap hold will be ultra low. Any team trading for him would have his bird rights. So you that's could... the, they do not get his bird rights though. That's the, that's the other thing. I I, I read oh. that. I yes, I I cuz I I saw someone tweet that and I looked up in the CBA you don't get your bird rights when you trade a player that has signed the qualifying offer to another team. So the Hornets are still the only team that are going to be able Retain to offer him five years and wow, like the okay, that has changed things. That he, so, yeah, so I take, that, I take a, it all like back. A really interesting, like value scenario. But I still don't think you're wrong though, because another team could just look at it as like we can basically get him for the playoff run, and then we'll have the same you know chance that we would have anyway to sign him on the free agent market. As long as they've got cap space. Right, exactly. They'd have to have cap space for that to happen because they they couldn't do it if they were already, you know, that's that's the only thing. But that is interesting. And it does give, I guess, Charlotte a little bit more leverage in terms of re-signing him. I mean, the the big question here is, what is that relationship like between his agency and front office? Like, it wouldn't shock me if Miles Bridges just later in the summer, like, moved agencies. It just wouldn't. A lot of baggage with Clutch. Like, yeah, they've stood by him over this past year, but this can't have been the situation how he wanted it to play out by signing the qualifying offer. And sometimes when you get situations like this, it's easy to be like, oh, if Miles plays well next season, the team can have him back. They can re-sign him. Um, You know, both parties can be happy. You have to remember the human side of this. In these sort of negotiations when teams are saying, we don't think you're worth it, it it can really damage relationships a little bit. And I hope they aren't too strained for Charlotte's point of view in terms of just pure leverage. But the good news is even if they are, let's say Bridges really is not happy with how he was treated, even though I think that would be outrageous because I think the Hornets have, if anything, been pretty lenient. Um, There might be new ownership and leadership. Well, definitely new ownership and maybe new leadership in the Hornets front office by next summer. So when it comes to the maybe negotiating about potential Miles Bridges staying in Charlotte on a longer-term contract, he might be having those negotiations with different people than he was this year, which could potentially give Charlotte a little bit of leverage if there was, you know, damaged relationships. Seven point nine million a year, a one-year deal. Do you think? What would you say the odds are that Miles Bridges is in Charlotte beyond this season? Hmm. I'd probably go 50 I'll go I might have to go 51 49 just because that like that 51 percent chance he stays just because the having his bird rights will definitely help for negotiating purposes but I don't know with how that this has gone it definitely seems like that they weren't as close you know with a contract negotiation negotiation as they were or as they may have seemed and the I think the only way that that happens is if he, not only plays really well, but like, you know, re-ingratiates himself into the community in a way that, you know, is impactful to the team um, and, you know, rehabs his value, you know, in their eyes, because obviously that had not happened yet in a way that his camp thought was requisite with his contract value and what they wanted him to resign at. So 
And it's, it's a lot easier to sign someone to a big contract a year removed from the thing happening and after having 82 games played. I'm not saying it's right, but it's just the truth. We see it in the NBA all the time. I think teams would be more willing to maybe offer Bridges more money next offseason after he's already he's already gone to all the different stadiums. He's already played against them. The fans have probably already booed him. Like Everyone's kind of got it out of the system and then people move on. It's not right, but it's just what happens in sport. And so I think I'd go less. I think I'd probably go like 30%, 35%, something in that realm. Just because there's so many ways I think this can go wrong. He can play so well that he is, you know, the number one or one of the top names in free agency that everyone are clamoring to get. And it might be clear and obvious that he's not happy in Charlotte. He could get an injury. He could fall out the rotation this year. You know, it's a pretty packed uh, front court uh, he, you know, he might not have the role that he wants. Uh, there could be just so many things that, that go a little bit wrong that could lead to him maybe thinking, I do want to go elsewhere. Um, and who knows if this fan base really like connects. Like, if, if Miles Bridges is getting booed by his own fans, is he going to want to come back here in a restricted free agency next season? I don't think he will be, but that's like, you know, little his experiences within the community. He's going to be a well known face. Um, you you just don't know. You just don't know. So, yes, Miles Bridges is back in Charlotte. I, I I guess this is a hard question. I'm not even going to ask you that question. I think from a basketball point of view, this makes the Hornets undoubtedly better for next season. Um, they do lose leverage long term, which you could end up losing the asset for free for nothing, which is never something you want to do with a small forward, power forward, 20-point scoring wing who can do a little bit of everything. Um, there is that risk. We could look back in 12 months and we could say that this was a great decision. We could look back in 12 months and this could be, wow, you know, why didn't the Hornets go up to that 22 million that Miles Bridges was looking for? They would have been in, so much, in a much better situation. It's just hard to know right now. We'll have to revisit this one in 12 months. All right. We're going to move on to our our dearly departed friend. Dennis Smith Jr. A priority free agent for the Brooklyn Nets, according to reports, who called him very early in free agency and offered him the whopping one million two point sorry, one year two point five million dollar contract. Um Chase, if I told you Dennis Smith was gonna sign for that anywhere in the NBA this year before free agency started, what would you have said? I would have been very surprised yep. uh, with the year that he had last year. That's not, I mean, it's a raise from what he was making, but he didn't get a really that much of a raise. I figured he would have at least gotten biannual exception money, like the low 4 million range, or even like a little bit above that and gotten like a piece of the MLE from some team or just signed maybe to like a seven or $8 million deal by a team that had some cap space and needed, had a need a backup point guard. But yeah, I mean, I think that this one, again, is very clear that the Hornets and Dennis's camp were also very far apart on what they wanted. And it wouldn't surprise me if the Hornets just kind of didn't really have any interest in bringing him back. Because you'd have to think that with the hole that they have right now at backup point guard, I mean, as of now, it's just Terry Rozier and LaMelo Ball as your like main ball handlers. And then you have... Nick Smith Jr. is the only other player on a guaranteed contract that can play on a, like a 15-man roster spot that can play point guard. We presume that Amari Bailey is a two-way player. Teo Maladon is also going to be a two-way player if he accepts the qualifying offer. 
So then you'd think that Dennis would slot in there at basically the veteran minimum as your backup point guard. But I, it seems that the Hornets didn't even really have that much interest in that unless he really wanted to go to Brooklyn, uh, which I wouldn't blame him for either. Uh, I mean, they uh, presumably he's going to play a lot there and who knows what they're going to do with the direction of their team. But right now they seem like they could be at least a play and level team in the East. Um, yeah, it's, it was, it's, it really stinks to, to see him go, but I kind of understand it from Charlotte's perspective that even at this, this low cost with how much that having a non-shooting point guard can hamstring your offense when your centers also are non-shooters, it kind of makes sense that even for, you know, like a bang for your buck contract, it's, just better for them to go in another direction. I think it's like you said, I think it's pretty clear that Charlotte had no interest in bringing Dennis Smith Jr. back. Um, I mean, even if you wanted to go to Brooklyn, there is no way that Charlotte could have just been like, all right, we'll pay 4.4 million in the biannual exception. We'll basically double your money. Do you want to come back now? And he would say, yes. Like there is no way I could have watched Everything I watched last season and gone, yeah, Dennis Smith Jr. hates it in Charlotte. He can't wait to get out. That that just wasn't what I saw last year. He had a coach that believed in him for the first time, probably since being in Dallas with Rick Carlisle. He was well-liked by his teammates. You could tell that, you know, seeing the interactions with the team. Um, the Hornets need defenders. We talked before, I think we talked actually at our end of season recap podcast, we talked actually how we... We would maybe be shocked, like a little bit surprised if Dennis Smith Jr. did come back next year, um, mainly due to some of the offensive struggles. And I think the Hornets have maybe shifted gears here. I think maybe they're fed up of having these rotating backup point guards. And I think that they are now confident that between point terror is here or the two-way play between Amari Bailey, Teo Maladon, um, and maybe Nick Smith Jr., who can maybe play some point. I'm yet to be convinced, but we'll, we'll see. It could absolutely happen. That they've got enough options that they want to roll with that. For a team with playoff aspirations, that scares me. For someone who, for a team where Lamelli Ball has been injury prone, it really, really scares me not to have a veteran point guard in, in the locker room. Um, but. That's all, all uh, how else I can read into the situation. I don't think they're going to sign anyone. I mean, I can read you the list of guys available right now. You've got like John Wall, Jordan McLaughlin, Iod Sumu's a restricted free agent. Um, then you're getting into like deep rotation guys. These are guys who, if they're playing for you, your team is bad. Raul Neto, Aaron Holiday, uh, Kennedy Chandler, George Hill, Frank Nilakina, Ish Smith, DJ Augustine, uh, Dacian Nix, Kemba Walker, I don't even know. And there's been absolutely no reporting about them even pursuing another guard. Um, at this point, it, maybe they're just thinking, well, let's wait till after Summer League. Let's see how guys like Amari Bailey and James Naji get on. And maybe we just, like, we can add someone late, late into free agency if we really feel that position is short. And if we actually feel pretty confident about it, then we can just rock with some of the guys and not have a backup ball handler. Um, it is interesting. I, I just can't believe Dennis Smith didn't even get more than that from elsewhere. I think it, it just goes to show if you're a point guard and you can't shoot, it doesn't matter how good you are at playmaking or defense. There is just not much of a market for you. Yeah, that's it. It really is like you have to be someone that is basically being catered to when you're on the floor, but 
backup point guard is not a role that teams are willing to cater to and, you know, construct lineups around to fit your play style and make it so you can excel. Like you said, unless that team is not very good, which is what the Charlotte Hornets were last year. And I mean, granted it worked out perfectly for Dennis because he is a, he is a fantastic defender. He's a good passer. He's a very athletic finisher. He just cannot shoot and he can't really score off of the dribble unless he's within, you know, three or four feet of the rim. Uh, And that is a, like hamstringing quality to have for a like a point guard on a quality competitive team. Cause I, I mean, I was thinking about this. Can he play in the playoffs? Like, I'm not sure that he's that he's so good at defense, but I'm genuinely not sure if he'd be able to be on the floor for like extended periods of time in like a deep playoff series right now, which like, the, I don't know if the Hornets are thinking in that type of lens, but like at least from my perspective, it would make sense if they were like looking at it that way. Like we need to at least be constructing the team with players that we think, you know, have a chance at being the seven or eight guys that are in the rotation when we're making playoff runs with LaMelo and Mark and Brandon Miller. And even Dennis, with, even with how good Dennis is as a defender, like if he plays a full 82 games, like legitimate all defense caliber guard, it, he just can't, you know, stretch out a defense in any real legitimate way that causes and it really hamstrings their offense like the second unit offense for the Hornets was one of the lowlights of the entire team last year yeah. Yeah. like he was the one running it unfortunately like so the the only real non-shooting impact playoff guy I can think of is Gary Payton the second who right. with the Warriors obviously last year as well and the years prior but even you look at Gary Payton he doesn't shoot a lot of threes but last season he shot 44% in Golden State, 53% in Portland, 34% in Golden State, then hit 67% in Golden State the year before. Um, that was only on eight-game sample size. But you know he at least hits in a, in like an okay percentage. Um, and I would say that Gary Payton is a little bit bigger. I would say he's actually probably an even better defender than Dennis Smith, a little bit more versatile just of who he can guard. Um so and probably better at playing off ball maybe than Dennis Smith. Yes, he was still definitely. like an off off ball guy. Dennis Smith Jr. was. So th- there aren't many guys of that prototype. You're absolutely right. Um, but w- what do you think the if they don't sign anyone, and even if they do, I imagine it's going to be someone like a break glass in case of emergency, Brad Wanamaker type guy. Um, what do you think they do with that backup point guard rotation? Do you think they they pull Terry out pretty early in the game? have him basically play 60 minutes per game as the backup point guard. And then that opens up minutes for McGowan's and Martin and maybe Nick Smith Jr. or Miller at the two. Like, is that what they do to try and get more wings onto the court? Are we going back to the Cody Martin point guard experiments by default? I'd I'd look at it. I'd look at it. I, 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 I hadn't really thought about it that much, but it might be. I mean, he's the third best ball handler, like playmaker on the team right now. And I mean, with the size that you can put on the court in that scenario, you have more shooting now with, you know, Nick Smith and Brandon Miller, Amari Bailey on the team. Between Amari and Teo, you also have 100 combined games uh, for that you can have them listed as active as depth. So that would cover that as well, like your fourth layer of insurance. That is true. You pretty much get the whole season between them. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like you, you might... Wow, yeah, you really actually might be able to get away with that because if Nick is if Nick is play Nick Smith is playable at all, 
that's another that's like that's five layers of of insurance. They're just all if buts and maybes, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. You're having to connect several dots, and this is a team that wants to make the playoffs next year. And normally, playoff teams don't have like those big question marks of like, yeah, who's the backup point guard? It's just not normally something good teams have that issue with, unless they've got a you know a Jokic style, you know, uh, centric facilitator. But I mean, Cody Martin. Uh, in his first year in the NBA, he played 1% of his minutes at point guard, zero minutes at point guard in the second year, and 6% in 21-22. So, so you're talking about a guy who's played like the tiniest, like something like 2% of his entire NBA minutes at point guard. And for him to be like the guy you have to rely on night in, night out after a serious knee injury last season, yes, it could work. But you're, you're something has to change significantly for this to make sense. But overall, I I don't mind making the decision on Dennis Smith Jr. that they made. I know that will be unpopular with a lot of Hornets fans. I do agree he was a highlight from last year. But big picture, we talked about this before. Like I was a guy, I was like over 4 million. I don't know if I want to go there over biannual exception. We talked about that on our preview podcast. People were talking about 8, 9, 10 million for Dennis Smith Jr. I, I never went there. Um, so I'm curious I think it's hard to pass judgment until we see the whole picture here. Yeah, I mean, I think we've we've been mentioning for a while that, you know, it's not necessarily the player. It's just the fit on the team. And while that looked very good last year, like we all know and, and hope anyway, that this coming year's team is a significantly different product on the floor every night. So, yeah, I mean, I, I too love – I loved watching Dennis. This was like – that he was probably the highlight of the Hornets season, like just what he did for himself and his career. Now he gets to go play in Brooklyn on a, on a bigger stage. He gets to play in New York. It's awesome for him. I'm going to, you know, keep watching him and keep rooting for him. But I, I agree in a vacuum. I, this decision is probably what I would have done myself also. All right. Very quickly before we finish, because we've got a summer league game to watch here. Um, we're not going to get into the Grant Williams, PJ Washington debate in depth. Or the reporting, because by the time you hear this, it might even be resolved, and we're going to have to do a whole other podcast about that. But just very quickly, in under a minute, in a vacuum, same contract, who do you prefer, Grant Williams or PJ Washington? PJ, easily. I, I like both of them, but if you're getting one of them, like if they're both getting, you know, $14 million a year or something, I think I prefer PJ pretty strongly in that in that situation. But what about you? I think it's really close. Um, on this Hornets team specifically, for what this team needs, which is defense and leadership, I think Grant Williams maybe ticks those boxes more than PJ. But I think PJ has a probably a higher upside as a guy who can do more things. It's just whether like this Hornets team will need PJ to do those things. Um, gosh, I, I, I probably do still give the edge to PJ. But I can understand the team convincing themselves otherwise and saying, you know, we like from a not not on the court perspective, but just like locker room and leadership point of view, which I think would still be a lot to put on a 20, what, five year old Grant Williams, um, who, you know, doesn't know any of the guys in shot to be like, come in and like, hey, everyone follow this backup power forward from Boston who wasn't in the playoff rotation at times. Like that's that's a hard role to fill. But if he could thread that needle, I do think that would be interesting. But um, yeah, well, interesting to see how that's going to play out. 
Yeah, definitely interesting. And on the surface, it certainly, you know, that would, you'd think that that would indicate another move is on the way because Mark Williams, Nick Richards, PJ Washington, Grant Williams, Miles Bridges, Gordon Hayward, very deep group of players that are, you know, six, seven, six, eight and above that play three, four, five. That's basically like 75% of a rotation right there, just with the players that I rattled off. So it would likely indicate another move of some sort, but it'd be, it would definitely be interesting to see what that entails, but it would have to happen for, for that yeah. to entail another move anyway. So we'll see. Absolutely. And and all these moves will make more sense once I think the Hornets have finished what they're doing. Um, hopefully they make more sense. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's hard to pass judgment or give a grade at this time. I know we kind of shared our thoughts on some of the individual pieces, but you do really do have to wait for the full picture here. So, Let's see how it goes. Chase, let's jump out and watch this first Hornets Summer League game. I'm excited to see the guys play. And um, yeah, for, for those listening to part two, I'm going to be releasing I'm releasing a little bit of a 15-minute recap just on my thoughts on the Summer League game against uh, from, from tonight's Summer League game. So you'll, you'll be hearing that as well in part two. Summer League is in the books. They lost 98-77 to the San Antonio Spurs. Despite a lot of excitement before the game with Brandon Miller making his debut, you know, a lot of returning players uh, and having on paper a lot more talent than San Antonio Spurs, the Charlotte Hornets were absolutely whacked for basically the entire game apart from, well, the entire first half. They were down 20 to 30 points for most of the game. And I'm just going to do a quick recap. This is going to be 15 minutes or so. Um, I'm going to start off with some kind of thoughts on the overall team performance. And then I'm going to run through individual guys, kind of player by player, just touching on kind of the the good and the bad. So first up, overall, let's start with the offense. So much over-dribbling to start the game in the first quarter. Guys, you know, no one ever got an open shot because they were just over-dribbling the ball, not moving it. The Spurs were just doing the standard Spursy thing, getting great shots all the time. And it was just bad basketball there there is no other way to describe it and Brandon Miller was guilty Nick Smith Jr. was guilty everyone was guilty but in that scenario I think you do have to put some extra responsibility on your guards you know James Booknight Nick Smith Jr. you would need to kind of set the tone get your guys into the sets and they were just not generating good shots there were no open shots it was all you know one person trying to force stuff against two or three people so the offense to start the game was was really poor it got better in the second half, but it's still, I think they were at one point I looked towards the end of the game, like two of 18 for three. And, you know, all the threes were pretty tough contested. Miller got a few open ones at the end, but they just weren't generating good offense. Defensively, there was just a lack of urgency. They looked like they were playing down at the rec park, whereas the Spurs were like absolutely communicating, absolutely everywhere, high effort level. The transition defense was absolutely terrible. The Spurs just scored in transition time and time again. You know, the Hornets turned the ball over, I think, four times out of five, trying this alley-oop play that they tried to run for Kai Jones five times. It went poorly four times, and they got fouled once. Um, At what point do you say, okay, maybe we shouldn't go for that because the Spurs team have just got their defensive rotations round? Credit to the Spurs. They were very good. But you look at the talent level of the two teams. I mean, the Spurs were – they were playing through – Blake Wesley, who was a late first-round pick last year, very young first-round pick, and Julian Champagny and Don Barlow, both who were undrafted in 2022. And both those guys look like the best two players on the floor. 
and they were just completely undrafted. Played last year in the G League, had some opportunity minutes. So that's definitely a little bit of a concern there. But let's move on to some of the players individually. Um, I'm going to start with who I felt had the best all-round game, and that is Brandon Miller. Um, I don't think it was a great game by Brandon by any stretch. Uh, he was, you know, struggled with scoring. He was one to seven at start. I think he finished five of eleven in the end um, from the field. So he picked it up in the fourth quarter, making some shots. But I think what impressed me most was just his all-round play. It wasn't necessarily his scoring. It was his uh, some of his defensive flashes. He had an absolutely huge block that he had. Uh, he had just good defensive effort. He made some nice smart plays. He showed a kind of nice handle and ability to get into that kind of mid-range area and drew, drew a, quite a few fouls attacking the rim. Um, you know, using that hang dribble, something I talked about over and over again in the draft process. Um, I do think he struggled to create. So he struggled to shake guys, I think, a little bit. There was a couple of times he tried to isolate, especially in the first quarter, and he didn't go anywhere. He didn't create any advantage. And he looked a little bit hesitant at times to kind of like pull the trigger, it seemed. And I don't know if that was hesitancy because he knew he needed to pass it or if he wasn't sure if he could get a shot off. It wasn't quite clear. But, you know, he had a lot of turnovers. A lot of those were actually travels. I think he had three travels, I want to say, in the first quarter. Um, and that was just, you know, a bit lazy footwork. I think that was definitely nerves towards the start of the game. But you saw a nice left-hand finish right at the rim. You saw a nice big and one right at the end, which is a really tough finish. Um, and he got a couple of those kind of deep relocation threes, which we saw so much at Alabama. And it was interesting. I think, you know, you have a look at Brandon Miller and he's not, I don't think at the stage, a guy who just give the ball to and say, go get us a bucket. He's not like that. Maybe like Paolo Banquero was like that as number one pick. What he is, is I think he's a really good defender. We saw, you know, he had, he only had one block in the box score, but I know he had two. And the one he did have, which was recorded, was a great recovery block after he got beat back door. So that was really impressive. Um, also, worth noting, he was booed by fans inside the arena. Um, didn't seem to bother him, but that was something that I noticed and probably something that he's going to have to get used to over the course of the season. So um, I think, yes, struggled to create space, was searching for a three-point shot in the first half, found it towards the end. I think all round, when you look at like, he really filled out the box score. Um, 15 points, I think like six rebounds, three assists, should have had two blocks. Um, so that's Brandon Miller, a, a solid start. I would give him a, a, a C plus, a B minus, something in that range. Um, next up, I had Bryce McGowan's. Now you might be looking at the box score of the game going, why is Bryce McGowan's the number two guy here? Um, because... Just watching it, he just did everything that made sense. Yeah, he only shot three of 10 and finished, I think, 11 points, five rebounds, two assists. But he got to the free throw line, drew fouls well, attacked the rim nicely. Um, he only played 17 minutes, so he definitely played less minutes than, than other guys. But I thought he made some nice reads kind of on the drive, making passes to others. He had some nice passes that led to fouls so they don't count as assists. And I just think it looked like a continuation of last year. He made the right play. He oft He didn't often make a, a bad offensive choice. He didn't force anything. He just played what the defense gave him, had a nice four-point play. Um, so I, I think for me, I saw a little bit of playmaking. I saw him able to play the three, which I think is an interesting look for this Hornets team. Can he be a true two-position player? And he looked comfortable with that. So I didn't have a bunch of notes from McGowan's, 
But I think it's just because he does the right thing so often. It's, you don't feel like the he's just playing like what is natural to him. And that seems to fit within the wider context of the team. So I'd Bryce McGowan's next. Next up, Nick Smith Jr. Um, people are probably expecting him to be a little bit higher. He had 12 points. He had five of 14 shooting, one of five from three, four turnovers, three assists, three rebounds. Um, look, we saw the painted mid-range game from Nick Smith. You know, pull-ups, floaters. Um, he's obviously an impressive shot maker in the mid-range. He also, at one point, had a three-on-one, which he decided to call his own number on, and he missed the shot. And you got you had you know, players either side of him screaming for the ball. And that kind of sums up his game. Nick Smith Jr. started a point guard in this game, and he had 20, 28, 29 minutes. And he only had three assists, four turnovers. He lost the ball quite a few times, just like loose handle dribbling at the top of the key, which just led to complete and utter runouts. So that's something that if he wants to play point guard, he has to get a tight handle. Um, I also felt he played slow, especially early in the game. They really struggled with offense to get into pace, to get into sets. And I think he was definitely partly responsible for that. Now, he didn't play primary point guard at Arkansas. That was more something he did in high school AAU. So this isn't to say he can't ever. But I did have my skepticism that he was a point guard when I was looking at the film, both from AAU and both from uh, his, his time last season. And this kind of still, I wouldn't say it did anything to really sway me that I think he could be a point guard. I mean, there was again a couple of, defensively, there was a couple of confusing moments. You know, Julian Champagne was on fire all night. And then at one point, Nick Smith is guarding him and Julian Champagne just walks down the floor and Nick Smith just stands five, seven foot off him and he just catches the ball right at the top of the three-point arc and he literally almost like looks at him being like, why are you standing there? And just pulls it for three and hits it. And that's the kind of like off-ball awareness that I just think sometimes Smith, he just goes into a bit of a space cadet mode. Um, he did have some nice plays. He had a massive block on Blake Wesley. He had another good rim protection from the weak side. So he's actually got some like sneaky length, which maybe I didn't expect, which he, you know, did really uh, affect some shots. But it's just locking in every single possession, especially off ball. That's where I, I really think he's struggling. But too many early shots from Nick Smith, called his own number too many times, over dribbling. Um, he did show some like nice passing flashes. He threw a nice alley-oop to Mari Bailey, which he got fouled on. That was a nice touch on that pass. He threw a beautiful no-look to Bryce McGowan's. Um, so he has got the passing ability. I think it's just a little bit of decision-making here about when to pass, when to shoot, and that's something he needs to work out. Next up, Amari Bailey finished with six points, three, re three rebounds, two assists, two steals, only two of five shooting, and two of seven from the free-throw line, which I'm sure will be wanting that back. So that stat line overall you think would be a little bit better if he just hit a few free-throws. Um, interestingly, no three-point attempts for Amari Bailey, and I think that might be something that we maybe get used to. He wasn't a big uh, frequency three-point shooter at UCLA. He generally, it feels like it's a little bit too far from right now and he feels more comfortable almost playing off ball. And that's what he did here. He played as a shooting guard for most of this game. Um, he had moments where he did handle the ball, but a lot of the time he was playing off people, playing off movement, off the catch, off cutters. And I, I said about this the other day, I tweeted out, that was something that stood out when I watched his UCF, UCLA film. He really cuts well. And we saw a couple of that. We you know, saw a nice dunk uh, and a cut. Um, you know, he had some back-to-back -back transition dunks. I mean, you didn't think that Amari Bailey, 
was going to be leading the Hornets Summer League team in dunks, but here we are so far. So his mid-range game, which is like where he really likes to get to, was just not on tonight. He was missed a couple of really bad mid-range shots, like barely grazed the rim on a couple of them. He got to his spots a couple of times, but just felt like he was a little bit sped up with that shot. So I think you saw some kind of good off-ball stuff, getting out in transition, cutting. He made a really nice kind of like pick and roll read at one point to Nathan Mensah. So he showed some of the stuff. Um, like played pretty good defense too, like got after it a little bit. One of the guys who in the second half really jumped off the page doing that, forced a kind of a big transition opportunity at one point. So I think for a you know 41st overall pick, a first little flash, he showed some things, which was which was interesting. Next up, James Bucknight finished the game with 12 points, uh, one rebound, one assist, one block, uh, two turnovers, three fouls, uh, four or seven shooting, one of four from three-point land. Um, he's just a bizarre player, man. I I really struggle to put my finger on it. And unless he's taking a shot, it's like he's not in the game. And he this is almost like what I'd say is the antithesis of Brandon Miller. Brandon Miller was one of seven in the first half, but you, you're seeing him do all sorts of things, passing, playmaking, screening, defending. But Knight just completely ghosts. Um, and, and he wasn't inefficient here. Like four or seven shooting is perfectly good. Three from three for the free throw line. He scored efficiently, which is something that Buck has probably forced it at times in the past where he's not scored all that efficiently and he's really tried to, to force some shots. He didn't do that, which is a good step. But I still didn't just feel his impact on the wider game. Like one rebound, one assist in 25 minutes for a third year lottery pick. You'd expect more from there. Um, defensively, this is where I was looking really closely. There was, you know, he had a nice block on a drive. That was that was great. He had another one which was close and it was a goaltend. But I don't know, man. I, I just don't know if it's ever going to quite click defensively. In the second half, this guy Logan Johnson checked in uh, from St. Mary's um, and Bucknight guarding him. And Logan Johnson looks right at James Bucknight and goes right at him twice. Finishes at the rim and one, gets fouled on the other. And I'm just there thinking, there's no screen, there's no action. You know, James Booknight is set in a guarding position and Logan Johnson just takes it right to the rim and you. There are guys twice the size, twice the athleticism of Logan Johnson in the NBA. How are you going to stop guys like that? How are you going to stay on the floor defensively? And that's my biggest question. It's not the offense. I think the offense... He had some nice drives and some nice finishes. I know the three-point shot wasn't necessarily on tonight, but I think he showed towards the end of last year he's a he's a goodish three-point shooter. It's just a defense, man. It's got to come along. And I don't think anything in this game necessarily jumped out to me defensively. I, also, it's just a little thing like body language. There was a big play where uh, I think it was uh, Justin Robinson had a big and one. He went kind of end-to-end -end on the court. The whole bench got up and cheered dunk for uh, Justin Robinson. Everyone was up cheering, clapping. It was a big play. James Booknight was the only player who just sat on the bench during this whole thing, did not react at all, and then he did one solitary clap, just one single one. That was it. <laughs> and that's where, like, if you're his teammate, and I know people are introverts, and I know he's maybe frustrated he wasn't having a great game. I don't know. But... You're trying to get back into the game. Someone makes a big play. Your whole team is up on the bench. 
And like, what do your teammates think when they look over there and you're just like sitting there with no reaction in your face? Almost, it felt like he was elsewhere in his mind thinking about other things, like not locked in to see his team have success. It's just a little thing, but we've seen that so many times now um, with this body language. And it is something that matters, especially when you're not a great player, when you're fighting for your NBA career, that stuff really does matter. Next up, Leaky Black. Um, there's not a lot to update. Zero for four, uh, five rebounds, two turnovers. Uh, look, this is kind of what you expect. I thought he moved his feet really well on defense. I, I didn't feel like he shut anyone down. He didn't create any turnovers or anything, but he did move his feet well, um, antagonized ball handlers a little bit. But this is the question. He had a couple of turnovers just from lazy footwork, standing out of bounds. And he had two, the only open threes they got in the first in the first half, the whole first half, were leaking black, wide open. There's a reason for it. He went zero for two. Um, like didn't look particularly bad, but those are two shots where the San Antonio Spurs offense were go- defense were going, yeah, we're going to let that guy shoot from out there because we know he is not a shooter and it works. So if Leakey wants a future in the league, he's going to have to start hitting those shots at like a 33% rate. Um, and no one out, no one in on night one. Kai Jones, the next guy. Um, well, what to say about Kai Jones? Uh, he played 21 minutes. He had uh, two points, zero rebounds, zero assists, zero blocks, two steals, five fouls, uh, zero from three from the field. Um, this this was the most concerning game from Kai Jones I've seen in his three years in Charlotte. And I'm not saying it's over for Kai Jones, but that's just the reality of this game that I just watched. Uh, Don Barlow, who was undrafted last year, there is not one person who could watch that game and ever say that Don Barlow was, you know, should be drafted higher than Kai Jones. He looked ahead of him every single aspect of the game. His jump shot was smoother. Defensively, he was better, didn't foul as much, switched onto guards better. Um, I think offensively finished around the rim well, set screens, did all the little things. Kai Jones, it was a complete disaster. Uh, he had one nice play early on where he had nice active hands and kind of like the pick and roll. He got a steal. And I'm thinking, Kai, don't you try and dribble up the whole floor here and try and, you know, put a dunk on. You've got two or three players around you. I don't, you know, I don't have confidence in your ball security. Uh, he did. He tried to dribble up. He missed the layup. All of a sudden then Spurs get transition opportunity, come back the other way, they hit three. You just have to, he needs to know who he is at this point. And I'm sure the coaches got into him by now. You've made the good play. You've made the defensive play. You've turned the ball over. If you don't have a completely open lane to go dunk the ball home, you need to be given it up to a guard and you get back into your offense. So, you know, too much, too much of a quick shot. It's what, Head coach Marlon Garnett said after the game, too many quick shots early. That was one of them. He did have a massive transition block, but at this point, it's kind of the the highlight plays kind of get lost in you a little bit with Kai Jones because there's so much other stuff which are issues around it. It doesn't count for anything. It looks cool on a highlight reel, but we have to start putting some of this other stuff together. It's year three now. Yes, he was a project, but by year three of your contract, you need to be showing progress at least I mean, some of the some of the issues, he just gave up mid-range jump shots to Don Barlow all night. And yeah, I understand at the start of the game, you give Don Barlow a 15-footer. You see if he makes it. 
But when he makes it three or four times in a row, then you need to be able to, you know, you need to make him do something else. And after that big transition block, everyone's pumped, you know, everyone's pumped about the huge block. Then out of the out of bounds from that very block, Kai just like was slow to rotate to Don Barlow, gave a, a, like a 10 foot jump shot and the Spurs scored. And then it's like, great, you made that massive block, but then you had a mental lapse and you weren't quick enough on Barlow. You just gave it straight back. So it doesn't even mean anything now. Um, there was a couple of times where I was just wondering where is Kai Jones help defense? Brandon Miller had a position where he kind of really got up onto a guy on Julian Champagny and he like forced him to drive. He was trying to make him put the ball on the floor. And I was just wondering where is Kai Jones? Brandon Miller was wondering the same thing. He turned around after the play and he was like, where's the help defense? Like I've pressured him up to put him on the ball on the floor and the guy's just got to the rim. And that just happened too many times. It didn't happen for the Spurs, for Don Barlow. But too many times, Kai Jones isn't in position. And I don't know if he's worried about his rebounds, which we're going to get onto now. Uh, no rebounds in the entire game on a Steve Clifford coaching staff where you know what they value. Zero rebounds in 21 minutes. It's just not good enough. It's just not. Um, if he is, If he wants any chance to be on the roster for this year, he needs to start to to turn that around. So look, if all of summer league is like this, then there's going to be serious questions about Kai Jones. I I don't believe it will be, you know, Kai was better in his first two summer league games than he was in this one. Uh, His first two years at summer league than he was in this one. A couple of like positive things. I did see him like talking loudly on screens. I don't know if that was just the microphones of the game were better or I'm not sure, but that was something I heard that communication and that's not something I heard when he's had NBA minutes or greens for four minutes before. So that was definitely something that Clifford said that the team need to execute better. And that's part of his responsibility when he's out there. So I did hear it. Um, I didn't always feel like there was a couple of times where he was saying what needed to be done. Like, but it was like a second late, the guy was already gone. So, but at least he's making the effort. Um, too many fouls. Uh, again, when he was trying to protect the rim, just like jumping at guys, guys drawing fouls for fun on him. He tried a backdoor pass, which was just, as soon as I saw him going for it, I went, oh no. Um, that's just not Kai James's game. He took this mid-range jump shot as well, isolation, kind of like 15-footer. And between like that, that quick transition layup that he took earlier that I mentioned, that 15-footer and that awful backdoor pass, those are the things that I think the coaching staff are looking at going, Kai, can you just focus on doing like the little things, rebounding, blocking shots, screening, before you start trying to do backdoor pass, backdoor cut passes, mid-range jump shots, going the whole, running the whole floor for layups. And if I'm a coach, I'm getting frustrated at this point because the message doesn't seem to be getting through. Okay, that's everything I've got on the first Hornets Summer League game. It's safe to say um, for a team that was expected to win, they're actually 2.5 point favorites and they lost by 21 points. So they uh, got absolutely whacked. Credit to the Spurs, but those are my overall thoughts. Interested to see how it goes for the rest of Summer League. Glad they're in California and they can get hopefully these couple of games out of the system and they can play a little bit better in Vegas. There'll be some more eyeballs on them, but... Yeah, thanks everybody for listening. Make sure you go check out our work at silhornets.com. If you could give us a five-star review and rating, that would be amazing. If you've enjoyed our draft coverage this year, you can do that on Apple Podcasts. That'd be great. And make sure you tell our friends. You can follow me on Twitter at British underscore buzz. 
And the next time you hear from me, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, I might be a dad. So looking forward to that, excited for that. Uh, For those of you who are dads, um, wish me luck and I will chat to you soon.